Good evening, everyone. Welcome to our Wednesday evening Q&A session. Meditation Q&A. Q questions, A answers. You asked questions. I'll try and provide questions, provide answers. With me here is Chris. He's going to help by asking the questions. Welcome. We have people waiting. We have questions coming in already. Great to see. Much appreciation. So it's a meditation Q&A, which means the question should be surrounding meditation. Which bears noting or remarking that even meditation itself is just a concept. So in the context of this session, That means even when we say meditation, we have to explain, we have to we have to uh, define what we mean by meditation, because it's like everything else; it's just a word, it's just an idea, and people often have different ideas about the same concepts. Meditation is especially that sort of thing. Many different many different ideas of what the word meditation refers to. And even in even in cases where even in the case where one has taken up a specific meditation tradition, say this meditation tradition, we still have to be able to distinguish, to distinguish between reality and the concept. We easily succumb to the idea that as soon as I sit myself down on a cushion with my legs crossed and my hands on my lap, I'm meditating. And then when I'm done, when I get up, I'm done meditating. We have ideas that the experiences that we have in meditation are somehow special. And so meditation takes on this life of its own. And it can be a cause for great anxiety and aversion in the case where meditation is difficult. Maybe you get this aversion just to the idea of going to sit and meditate can be a cause for attachment. The special experiences that come up, these are meditative attainments. I have become meditative. I've entered into a deep meditative state. It leads to negligence. Oh, I meditated for two hours today. And the rest of the time I did nothing meditative. 
and the rest of the time I was distracted. The rest of the time I was killing and stealing and lying and cheating or whatever, taking drugs and alcohol. But I did some meditation. I did about two hours, one hour, uh, 30 minutes. You don't, in this tradition, we don't meditate for so long. We meditate only for a moment. And that moment is the meditation. So meditation, it's not to say that meditation isn't real, but meditation is a, a, a way of engaging with reality. That's it. And so it happens momentarily. Every moment that you engage in a certain way with reality, that moment is a moment of meditation. So in this tradition, the way we instruct people to engage with reality is to see it clearly as it is. And so meditation is not the hour you're sitting on the mat or the half hour or the ten minutes. So it's all those moments when you reminded yourself and then remembered, oh yes, I'm sitting. Ah, my stomach is rising. It's falling. So the problem the problem is it's related to this idea of non-self. Non-self is a cause for great confusion, worry, doubt. When we think of non-self as the idea that there is no self, and, and we fall into the same trap there where we, we hypothesize something, a thing. We conceive of a thing we call the self, and that's what we do with meditation. We conceive of a thing, an entity, a self. It has a life of its own, and it takes on a life of its own. The self does the same. God does the same. Meditation does the same. You give it a life of its own, and then it becomes conceptual, and your conception, your concept, your idea of it, takes precedence over what's actually happening. In reality, you can't ask, is there a self? Because reality doesn't have things, it only has experiences. That's how we look at it anyway. Even when I say reality doesn't have things, I'm, I'm, I'm appealing to this idea of there being a thing called reality or, the, or a set of things that might exist in reality, and it's actually not that way at all. But it's a way of using the limitations of language to describe a new way of approaching life, experience. That is by paying attention to experiences, seeing from the perspective of experience. That's the way we look at things. When we talk about meditation, it's important to recognize your concept of it and how that can be vulnerable to 
partialities, liking, disliking, can be a breeding ground for views and opinions and clingings, arrogance, conceit, etc. I'm a meditator. I've been meditating for X number of years. It's okay to say it. It's not, not really healthy to cling to it. To be proud of it. Well, we have some questions coming in. I'm ready. Uh, from now on, I'd ask that the chat be reserved for questions only. Chris will be removing any comments or anything that's not a question until we get to the end where you can then talk again. Go ahead, Chris. I'm ready. Okay, let's begin. Coming from Christianity, I observe the states in which I would have asked for divine help. I notice deep loneliness, helplessness, and all-encompassing despair. Precisely which satipatthanas are involved? So, just in general, asking which satipatthanas are involved isn't really a useful question. I mean, it's a question that I get, that we often get from people, I think, who are versed in the teachings, and maybe people who are inclined towards an intellectual understanding of, of the teaching. I mean, it's a common question from a subset of meditators. But it's not useful, really. The Satipatthana are not there to help you identify which is which Satipatthana. It's a means of creating a framework, that's all. It's only one of many frameworks, and it's not the only one. It's not the most you know, real or true or anything like that. It was just a teaching the Buddha gave and took up and, and used as a means of describing and laying out something that doesn't really have categories, but we call reality or experience. So it doesn't really matter which Satipatthanas are involved. If you want to know intellectually, this mostly relates to the hindrances, which are in the Dhamma Nupassana Satipatthana. But that's not really important at all. It's useful to know that they're hindrances because they're things that, of course, get in the way of us feeling peaceful and calm and finding clarity and seeing the truth, gaining wisdom, becoming enlightened. Um, but it's also important to be able to dissect these, like loneliness. It's just a word. Calling it deep, you have to be careful because you've started to judge it already. Saying something is deep or shallow, saying something is all-encompassing. What is it that's it's encompassing? I mean, it's a, it's a it's an important description, but you have to not emphasize those facts because otherwise, all encompassing means well. If it's all encompassing, then there's nothing, absolutely nothing you can do about it. But that's not true with any sort of despair. At the moment when you're 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 in a state of what you might call despair, then it's not possible. But the next moment when you know that you're feeling despair then it's quite possible to be mindful. And that's what we do right after we know that we were, or we are, or were technically, just that moment we were despairing, which would be anguish, sadness, disliking, anger. It can be usually sadness, sort of, right? Fear even, perhaps, worry. And it can be all of those things 
in sequence. So whatever it is, once you're aware that that came up, then you apply the practice. That's the important thing, of course. Loneliness, so maybe you crave for a companionship, maybe you're sad because you don't have it, maybe you're angry, depressed, you should don't all that. Helplessness is actually a part of a good thing. No, helplessness, there are, there are types of helplessness or, or feelings, types of feeling helpless that are actually very important in the practice. Because being being able to help yourself, being being potent, is an illusion. Or or let's not say an illusion, but it's it's um it's misguided because it leads to an increasing need or inclination to try and control things. And that just doesn't play out well in reality. Reality doesn't go the way we want it to, and then we get frustrated because of our habit, our, our, our inclination to try and control. So feeling helpless is actually quite useful because it, it changes our perspective and helps remind us that indeed we can't control everything for eternity. It's just not the right or useful way to go. It's not peaceful, it's not happy it's not it's not the road to freedom true freedom comes from letting go from learning to be at peace with the world to let go of the world to stop clinging to the world stop trying to fix our world internally externally stop trying to help ourselves in a sense a big part of the the progress and someone's true truly helping themselves is helping them to see how helpless we are helping them helping us helping ourselves to see helplessness the the problem is when you don't like that when you wish you could control things when you want to control things want things to be different from what they are which ultimately, ultimately is something you eventually have to let go of. And your behavior, your your engagement with the world becomes very natural. doesn't mean you don't do anything. You can act very, very engaged often. But it's natural. It's not because you want to control. It's because that's just the thing you do at that time. It's the right thing. It's with a clear mind that you do that thing. Not with any, not with any vested interest in the outcome. That's very important in meditation, in life. It's important as a meditation teacher that you don't have any vested interest in your student's outcome. It's important in the work you do. It's most important in the meditation practice. You should never have a vested income, vested outcome, vested interest in the outcome of the practice. Just focus on being pure. When you have a pure mind, all good things come from that.
How can I overcome my fear of losing physical health? It is preventing my desire to meditate. I understand health is impermanent, but I cling to diet, physical exercise, and hygiene mind. The desire to meditate is probably a red herring. I'm sort of spinning off what I've been saying so far. Uh, it, it relates to taking it as a concept and then liking or wanting it, and that's not useful. You can't depend on your desire to meditate. When you have fear, this is something that leads you to ask, how can I overcome this fear? And that's why we meditate, because we see that something needs to be done. Because we're, you're wise, you have the wisdom enough to want to ask this question. That's what's important. So your fear of losing physical health is actually much more important than your desire to meditate. And so you should take the fear as an object. And you would say to yourself, afraid, afraid, worried. There's probably a lot more than fear there. There's ego. There's um, There can be attachment. There can be uh, a, a liking of your physical state, a disliking of your physical state. You can be intoxicated with things like exercise and health and healthy food. People people who are, eat healthy food, it doesn't mean that just because they eat healthy food they don't, don't like or are addicted to the healthy food. Clinging to a diet. All of these things are the reason why we practice. They're not hindrances. I mean, they are. But they're not hindrances to practice. They're hindrances to enlightenment, and we practice in order to free ourselves from those hindrances, to see things more clearly. Our practice is very much engaged with those negative states in order to change those habits, in order to see the things that we react to in a way that is such that we no longer react to them negatively like that. What would be the toughest part in the process of meditation and peace for a young man who is nearing adulthood with ADHD? Well, it depends on them, really. I don't know that things like ADHD are, are the defining quality of a person. I, I guess, obviously, they're not, and that's important. One thing I've noticed with people is how we present ourselves externally and in the world and when we're doing casual activities uh, often doesn't have a great deal in common with who they are deep down when the going gets tough. Some people who you might say have ADHD can accomplish quite a bit in meditation. Some people, other people perhaps not. That has a lot to do with their long-term, we're talking past lives perhaps, or their deeply ingrained qualities, which go deeper than being attention deficit or hyperactive. But, well, I don't think there's a real mystery with this question because uh, AD, attention deficit is a, a, an un, un, 
helpful and unhelpful state of mind. Hyperactivity is problematic. But they're not that bad. What's really bad is when it gets to you, when you when you're frustrated or depressed or upset by it. When you make more out of it than it actually is. That's when it really turns into a problem. That's why I shy away from or, or encourage people to at least um, context, no, see these things, put these things in their proper place, put labels in their proper place. And it gets back to what I was saying at the beginning of the session. Just like meditation is a word, ADHD is an acronym, it's a bunch of words. They're just words. It's a it's a thing. It's become an entity. And when it becomes an entity, when you say I have ADHD, I am ADHD, have am, you're not describing the reality of the situation. You're saying something that's practically useful to say, and it's how we talk. And oh, I was doing an hour of meditation. It's not. You're not lying, and it's not. It's not a useless or or a bad thing to say. It's quite useful at times quite useful to tell people that you have ADHD. It's not useful to think of yourself as a person with ADHD. It's not nearly as useful as paying attention to those things that make up the moments which lead you to observe that you are a person who has ADHD. And so by focusing on those things, those moments, of distraction, of hyper hyperactivity, you know, high energy. They're really not that bad. Thinking is not that much of a problem. Even hyperactivity is not nearly as bad as we think it is. And that's the point with everything. Really nothing is as bad as we think it is. When we think something's bad, we've already thought too much about it. So if you think something's bad, it's definitely not as bad as you think it is. Because nothing's bad whatsoever. I mean, thinking that something's bad, it's not a question of, again, is it this, is it that, is it good, is it bad, is it bad? That's not the point. Thinking of something as bad is a bad way to interact with it. So it's useless, it's harmful. And you'll see that as you meditate. So you'll incline away from that and incline towards seeing the moments as they are. That's what happens. Can we always associate emotion with our thoughts? Sometimes I can't tell what emotions to label with the thoughts I have. So you don't go looking for things. So it wouldn't be, oh, I have a thought, I wonder what emotion is associated with that. I, there's no reason to be doing that, so you can just stop that. If, on the other hand, you mean, oh, I've thought something and there's this unrecognizable emotion. <laughs> I know it's there, but I don't know what it is. Well, two things. If that's the case, then two things. First of all, you get better at identifying things as you go and you might have to take a little bit of time stepping back and saying I think that was this emotion 
But on the other hand, it can be understood in usually much simpler terms. Is it liking? Is it disliking? Or is it just a, a feeling? And so you can say liking or disliking or feeling, and often it's one of those three. If you don't know what kind of feeling it is, you can just say feeling. But your first question is, is I mean, no. The answer is no. Some thoughts don't have emotion with them, of course. And there's no reason to try and make that association. We don't try to make associations in general. If you're thinking, that's thinking. If you have an emotion, that's an emotion. It doesn't matter which led to the other. You might see that. You'll probably start to see those connections. But that's not the practice. That's not uh, what we engage in doing. It's something that sort of comes. It's sort of a, a positive benefit of seeing what leads to what. And it's the sort of thing that leads us to make conclusions, not intellectually, but practically and experientially, about the sort of direction we want to head I don't want to do this because it leads to that, for example. You'll just start to see that more and your mind will incline in ways that are more positive, beneficial, helpful, peaceful. I fell ill a few days ago. I tried to note the pain and it did help but it was very difficult to stay in a mindful state. How can one benefit from such an experience? What can I do better? Well, training, really. It sounds like you did quite well. Difficulty is not something that should ever be a concern. It's not something that should ever be seen as a problem. Difficulty is, is really how the meditation should appear because you're, it means you're challenging yourself. Now it can be overly difficult so you're not ready for that challenge and you just freak out and lose your mindfulness. So that just takes training to get better at it. The illness does several things. I mean, it, it shows you the frailty of life. It helps put a lot of things in life in perspective. Uh, it, it provides you with this feedback of how, how am I doing in meditation? Ah, when the chips are down, this is how well I did. When I was in a challenging state, this is how well I did. And it, it wakes us up in some ways. It provides often better practice because we're constantly asking ourselves or telling ourselves, there's something wrong, what can I do about it? When things are going well, we become complacent, of course. So sickness can be a great opportunity to practice if you're well, good at it, if you're trained in it, if you've been practicing. Am I the one thinking... I am often not even aware of the thinking and don't feel much in control of the thoughts that pop up in my mind. So I wonder if I am the one thinking. Yeah, that's, it's, this is an example of focusing on the wrong, the wrong perspective. You're, you're getting back into the realm of things, entities. 
What's important in this sentence, in this, this passage, this paragraph, is your description of what's actually happening, and that's what you should focus on. I am not often even aware of the thinking. Okay, that's, that's useful in that it shows that there's distraction. Don't feel much in control of the thoughts. I mean, that's a great realization. That's that's true. You know, that's what you're experiencing, and that sort of experience is good. That sort of clarity of mind, seeing that, is going to help you move away from trying to control things, trying to possess things. I am thinking. This is me. This is mine. It'll help you acclimatize to the new perspective of seeing things just as they are, as they're experienced as experiences but your questions are not relevant when you're wondering wondering is a, is a, a sure red flag as soon as you say I was wondering you've gotten off track and you should say wondering, wondering because there's no reason unless it's a unless it was some practical wondering All right, we can sometimes use the word was wondering if I should try and eat only in the morning. I was wondering if I should keep the eight precepts. I was wondering if I should try to practice more. Those kind of wonderings are okay. But wondering about eyes is curious, that sort of thing. If you're just curious, you can let it go. When noting the sense of self, it doesn't disappear even after 10 or 15 minutes. Before, reality was clearly moments of experience. After noting sense of self, reality feels like objects. Advice? It's, fu it's a funny thing because even the sense of self is not under your control. You can't make it come, you can't make it go. I don't know what you really mean by sense of self. Um, you're, it's probably not what you think it is. It's probably just some feeling in the mind that you should just notice feeling, feeling. And I think as you progress in the practice, if you practice according to the booklet, and try to do courses and accordingly, you'll start to see that nothing lasts for 10 or 15 minutes. Probably what's happening is you keep checking back, is it still there, which somehow evokes this feeling and you say, oh yeah, it's still there. And it's not still there, you just made it happen, made it come again. I'm not really sure about the last part, what you say, I don't really get it. Reality is moments of experience. I'm not sure how you got to a state where reality feels like objects, but if there's that feeling, you would just say feeling, feeling, because that's an experience. I think probably you're 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 leading yourself in the wrong direction by creating this idea of a sense of self that you've somehow think is there for ten to fifteen minutes. You should try and note what's really there moment to moment.
Is the goal of meditation to clear our mind, to empty it of any thoughts? I understand how meditation can help us be more conscious of our thoughts and feelings, but if there are none left, then what? The goal of meditation is to be free from suffering. I don't like to dwell, I already mentioned this, too much on the goal because focusing on goals is not useful. So let's just take that out. Let's say, uh, put that aside for now. That sort of question is never going to be useful. Look at the second part of what you say. I understand how meditation can help us be more conscious of our thoughts and feelings. Enough. And let's build off of that. Let's say, not just be conscious of them, but be able to distinguish and understand them and, and naturally be able to differentiate which ways of being conscious are positive and which ways of being conscious are negative. And we don't even have to go further than that because the mind, once we've done that, will sort itself out naturally. Anything about a goal being this or that, I'm not trying to avoid the question. I'm trying to say that the question is never going to be relevant. That's not how it works. Mindfulness is a path, something that you do for the reasons that you see, because it's the way to go. Where does it lead? It leads where it shows you that it's leading you. It's leading you to less suffering, more freedom, more peace. That's where it ends up. It's not to say that once you've started to experience it, you've gone far enough. Meditation leads to something far more profound than that, but it's not it's not outside of that. It still is peace and freedom, that's the point. Nothing about any other goal. So practically speaking, just to to as a note, you should never be trying to do anything like this and, and most especially trying to empty the mind of any thoughts. You should do as is instructed if you're following this tradition. Practice according to the booklet. When you see that that's useful, that gives you confidence and you continue to do it. If you're interested, you can do an at-home course. And then you can start to see what is the goal. You'll see it because you'll start to live it. You'll start to experience it. Well, you'll start to experience uh, the path. You'll start to experience the nature of the goal even though the goal is still something more profound it's just a more profound it's the, the, the pinnacle of that when you get to the top and then you let go completely that's the goal If you say pain, 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 but it never goes away, how do you move on or stay with do you move on or stay with it? How should I note itches? Itchy, itchy? Yeah, if it if after a long time it doesn't go away, just ignore it and go back to the if you're sitting, go back to the stomach. If you're walking, start walking again. Itchy is the same. Just stay with it for some time expecting that eventually it's going to go away and if after a long time it doesn't 
once you feel like you've had enough of it. Pretty sure it's not going to go away, but your mind is no longer sort of interested in it. Then go back to the stomach or go back to the meditation. Any tips for anyone who is struggling to meditate more than 10 minutes in one sitting? What time length would you recommend for beginners? Uh, well, one thing that I bet would help you is if you did walking first and then sitting. So tack on 10 minutes of walking before you do your sitting. If you haven't read the booklet, read the booklet. If you have read the booklet, well... It's got instructions on how to do walking. And I bet you find that that helps. And when you do walking and sitting together, the walking gives you power and strength and supports the sitting. And then you can increase it to maybe 15 minutes walking, 15 minutes sitting. And then you can try to do that twice a day. And if you can do that twice a day, 15 minutes walking, 15 minutes sitting, you've done an hour a day. And then you can do the at-home course. So we have an at-home course that's free. You can try that. And then we can go through a whole set of practices. And eventually you'll get up to two hours a day during the course. And then you'll really be a, a meditator. Do you say distracted, distracted, when you cannot specify exactly what's distracting you? Well, distracted is more for when there's real distraction, when you're not focused. So there's lots of things, lots of thoughts, or your mind is jumping at everything, flitting from one thing to another, that's distracted. If there's one thing that has got you distracted from something else, then that one thing should be the object. Whatever it is, you have part of the, a basic skill is being able to identify it. It's part of the practice of mindfulness. If you can't identify things, you're not in very good shape to be able to see them clearly. So try and figure out what they are. If it's a feeling, then it's just feeling. If it's a thought or an awareness, then you can say something like knowing or aware. Knowing and feeling are two fairly basic ones. I'm finding more patterns of thoughts and feelings in my practice, and resistance to meditate is getting stronger. Advice? Well, I'd focus on the resistance because you're building that up as a habit. We build up bad habits easily, as easily as we build up good ones. Meditation is not immune to that. So resistance to anything, it's not, it's not about meditation. This is about disliking something. Disliking something is a cause for suffering. When, whenever you think of it, you dislike it. You dislike the idea of it. That's a problem. That's You've created a suffering for yourself. So try and say disliking when you feel that disliking.
Meditation is a challenge. It can often be, it should be uncomfortable. It can often be unpleasant. It doesn't have to be unpleasant, but it often is. But it should be uncomfortable in that it takes you out of your comfort zone and challenges everything you hold on to, everything you believe in, everything you hold dear. Nothing is sacred. That's a good motto. Oh, that's a really good motto. Nothing is sacred. I think that should be a Buddhist catchphrase. It's not that you think of everything as profane, but it means nothing nothing is nothing is immune to obser objective observation. There's nothing that you should hold as, as special as outside of the purview of, of mindfulness. Which means it's, it's difficult because there are many things that we want to see as immutable, true. So many things that we hold to be true are just, just belief, just views, things we convince ourselves of, things we have been told, been taught, been convinced. Are there many different types of meditation? If so, how can one not waste time doing the wrong type of meditation? You are my first introduction to meditation. Well, I think there are few there are only there are very few types of meditation that are wrong uh, compared to the number of famous, well-known, popular types of meditation that are right or that are good. I mean it's 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 not accurate to say wrong or right good or bad is 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 better right because the wrong type i mean what what you're asking is not a bad question and and how you're phrasing it is not bad phrasing but if we take a step back and and think of them as good and bad you're not going to find a meditation that is bad or even wrong for you hmm that's not quite true. Okay, let's 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 qualify that as well. Some types of meditation are are better for for certain types of people than others, and that's easy to to back up. I can back up that claim by describing those types of meditation and those types of people. Some people have a great proclivity towards lust, and so those people, when they practice happy meditations. Meditations about friendliness is a very common one. We call metta. You send good thoughts to people. May they be happy and so on. But those positive thoughts are easily tainted by the lust or the, the attachment of those people. So it's not so helpful for them to practice those ones. On the other hand, people who are angry and hateful and spiteful sorts of people, easily irritated, do very well with friendliness meditation. There are many positive types of meditation, many peaceful, happy types of meditation. But someone who is greedy and lustful would do much better with a meditation on things that are going to be loathsome to try and counterbalance that. There's many types of meditation, and many of them are like that. They're just meant to um, challenge and counteract 
specific uh, imbalances of mind, really. Specific bad habits. Mindfulness is different, and I can claim that as well, because mindfulness takes a look at all habits and doesn't try to counter counteract them. What mindfulness tries to counteract is delusion, ignorance. And that's not something that only a few people have. If someone doesn't have ignorance, then it's merely a way of describing, way of, of, of expressing the fact that they are more wise and more enlightened, right? So that's never going to be an either-or, where if someone's very wise, uh-oh, they have to do something to counteract that, no. Someone has ignorance, that's the whole point. And in fact, ignorance is the culprit behind all sorts of bad states. It's the culprit behind greed. It's the culprit behind anger. It's the culprit behind delusion. And so, you can, with some amount of confidence, appreciate the fact that mindfulness practice is different is applicable and is never going to be wrong for this or that type of person. Now, how do you choose a meditation technique when there are many types that call themselves mindfulness? That I can't really answer for you. I can describe the qualities and benefits of this practice. And I can say that the practice that we use is something that's very concrete you're never going to have a question or a doubt or an uncertainty of how you should approach your your experiences. It's got a clear progression to it. Something that you can immediately see the results of. So you can decide for yourself whether those are sufficient, useful, beneficial. Um, whether they're the what you're looking for. They may not be what you're looking for, but they may, for some people, they're not what they're looking for, but they realize they were looking for the wrong thing, so that can happen as well. If you're interested, I'd recommend, if you haven't, read the booklet. If you have, consider doing an at-home meditation course. If you've done that, well, you've probably already found how beneficial this practice is, and if that benefit that you've gotten is sufficient for you, then I wouldn't worry about considering other practices. If you found it beneficial, then stick with it. If you haven't found it beneficial, then yeah, go find something else. So, so I guess one answer, part of the answer is just try. You can always try different techniques. Because it's never going to get much better than that. Everyone's going to tell you theirs is the best and you should tr practice it and tell you what's good about it and that sort of thing. But until you try, you won't know for yourself. It's quite easy for someone who doesn't have... For, for <coughs> it's quite easy for a teacher who's teaching is not practical, not beneficial, limited, etc. to still claim that it's the best. So don't believe me. Try it for yourself. Since I introduced sitting, rising and falling now has two viewpoints, looking from above 
or from the belly itself, like looking at a house from an airplane or from the front door. Should I choose one? No. No, rising is just rising. Don't make more out of it than it is. If you notice yourself looking from a certain viewpoint, you can note that like knowing, knowing. That's all. When watching the stomach, I notice the rising and falling, but I don't know if I notice the rising and ceasing of the mind. Should I? And how can I notice that? We don't look for things in meditation. Don't look for something like the rising and ceasing of the mind. Look at what's there. Try and see what's there. The rising, does it begin and end? The falling, does it begin and end? In all honesty, you're already seeing, you're most definitely already seeing the arising and ceasing of the mind. Most of the truths and wisdom that we gain from meditation just goes by unnoticed. We don't even realize that it's the wisdom we're looking for. And if you start reading texts or getting ideas about something like the rising and ceasing of the mind, you're just going to miss what's right there. You're already seeing it. You're just going to see it more and more clearly as you focus on what's important, and that's observing the things that are there, the things that you do see. I have noticed there's an aversion to walking meditation. Even with all the steps, the aversion persists, and I note it. Still, sometimes I just sit instead. Is this only practicing halfway? So in daily life, walking meditation can be a bit of a drag because you, in, for some people, they're, they're quite physically active anyway. In that case, you can skip walking meditation if you're very physically active. That being said, doing things that you don't like to do is often a great way to begin the meditation practice because it challenges you. The problem isn't the walking, the problem is the aversion, absolutely. So, you're never going to be free from suffering until you stop reacting to things like that, stop getting upset about things. So what, a, what better way than to do something like walking, which is innocuous? I mean, what the heck is wrong with walking, right? So do it for that reason. And you'll probably have a much better time with it when you think of it that way. Oh, good. Walking's going to give me a challenge. All right. If sitting's easy, well, walking's going to be much more important for you. That'll change your whole perspective if you can get into that. But note, I mean, note the aversion. That's the whole, that's the base. I have slight OCD, which sometimes makes me obsessed with certain things. Can being obsessed with meditation be a bad thing? Yeah, sure. Again, getting back to what I was saying earlier. Because what happens is, as you've seen, I mean, not to pick on people, but some of the questions that have been asked here are kind of that sort of thing, where 
you you make more of something than it is. When you obsess about something, you start to wonder, am I doing it right? Am I missing something? Is that what I'm looking for? When am I going to see what I'm looking for, etc., right? You're totally not meditating anymore. Now, what what a better way of describing it, I think, would be you'll meditate, you'll sit down, you'll try and do it, and then all sorts of things are going to happen. Obsession will arise. And that's not a sign that you're doing something wrong. That's a sign that you're doing something right. You're seeing your obsession. So don't be discouraged because you're obsessing over meditation. Try and just, just try and take that obsession as an object itself. You can even say obsessing, obsessing. When you get a little more clear about it, you can start to note the moments where you, you're worried about something, you want to do something, you dislike something. There's lots of different emotions and hindrances involved. Just try and take them all as objects. This is related, I think, but distinct. Can one become addicted to meditation where one finds so much pleasure meditating that he will meditate instead of doing his normal daily activities and obligations? Yes. So the point being here that, that this person, hypothetical person, is a bit blinded or blinkered. Um, and that so that's actually relates to sort of obsession. That's that's an example of obsession. Something is good, so you just blindly do it without any sort of perspective on the right time, the right place, the right amount, and the 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 place that it has in this bigger thing we call life. Meditation still has a place in something bigger, not bigger, something broader, which is life. So, again, this goes back to what I was saying earlier. In fact, the great thing about mindfulness is that all those normal daily activities and obligations are a part of that which can be observed mindfully. And that's a big part of what we try to do with meditators, is encourage them to bring the meditation into their daily lives. When it's a it's a common thing where you get well, it's it's a thing that happens where people get obsessive about meditation times. I must do this many hours a day and that's my meditation. And then wanting to just do that all the time. Doing a lot of meditation every day is great, but a person who lets things that they need to do slide is not really being mindful. It's being blinkered and it is being obsessive. It's uh, it's kind of stubborn. It's this sort of the way of the ox, perhaps, or the idea of an ox that just plows ahead unthinkingly. No, you can't be like that. Being mindful it involves seeing clearly, and seeing clearly is also has a place in our activities. Now I should walk. Now I should sit. These are these are positive states. Now I should do the dishes. 
is also a positive state, the knowledge of when things need to be done. I mean, a big part of the practice is going to be realizing that a lot of the things you do are not necessary. I don't need to work so much. I don't need to be so successful, so rich. I don't need a big house. I don't need a nice car. I don't need fancy clothes. I don't need fancy food. So many of the things that we do, things we used to call obligations, are going to seem like burdens. And we'll start our, start to give them up. But that should happen mindfully. For someone who is truly practicing, it will happen as is appropriate. One won't just walk out the front door one day and not look back. Go and live under a tree in the yard or a tree in the park. You might. I mean, it's not necessarily the wrong thing to do. But it quite likely is the wrong thing to do for most people. The right thing is to learn how to get from where you are to where you should be, which is a state of enlightenment. And that always is going to involve some measure of interacting with the world, even if it's just to find a way to get food. Anyone who doesn't see that is, is blinded, blinkered, is only looking at things from a very narrow perspective, it's kind of a, 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 a toddler or a two-year-old understanding of things. They want something and they just, everything else disappears. They need wisdom. They need to let go. It's a kind of, it comes from obsession. During sitting meditation, I begin to feel as if my neck was slowly tilting to the right and elongating a lot, so noting sitting seemed inappropriate, even though I knew I was erect. What's happening? The mind plays tricks on us. It's because you're not sitting. There is no sitting. There is no body. Those are all concepts, right? You'll never experience the body. You'll never experience sitting. What we're saying when we say sitting is being aware of the posture of the body. We recognize it as sitting but we're, we're we're being aware of the tension we're being aware of the feelings that's what we're being aware of um, as you do that because that's not sitting because that's not a body erect and there is no body erect you're never going to experience a body erect your mind starts to uh, distort get distorted the mind is is just you know the brain and you know, all the way it works it's all very organic so it it messes up there's lots of ways optical illusions you can really fool yourself optical illusions if you twist your tongue in your mouth it's just a silly example twist your tongue to the side like 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 a corkscrew and push it against the teeth it'll feel like your teeth are sideways We very easily get into these states where we, we experience things different from what we're used to experiencing them. There's many experiences that have been done in this sort of way. You can uh, show someone, a, give someone a, a camera, like a, a VR goggles, and put a camera behind them, and they'll actually have an out-of-body experience. They'll feel like they're behind themselves. So that's a bit of an explanation of why that's so. I mean, it's very common. Um, the the practice to do is actually not to really pay any attention to what I just said and to just say, 
feeling, or in this case, sorry, knowing, knowing. Now, if you feel it, it's feeling, feeling, but it can often be more like knowing. Even seeing, sometimes you see the body bigger. Sometimes you just feel like the body is very big, twisted. Sometimes you, you, uh, you're conscious of yourself sitting in a, facing a different direction from what you thought you were sitting. Because that's also very conceptual. Once you close your eyes, there's no more direction. You're no more sitting in this direction or that direction because you don't see it. So it's very easy to suddenly think you're, you know, think you're sitting in a certain direction, open your eyes and realize, oh yeah, wait, I'm sitting facing in a different direction. I just note it when it happens. In walking meditation, I tried noting lifting, moving, placing, instead of just stepping left, stepping right. Is this step necessary, or can I stay on stepping left, stepping right? So if you haven't done the at-home course, I would recommend you do that. If you've read, I assume you must have read the booklet or something like it, and you've probably read other things that tell you to do it in different ways. In the at-home course, we go through that sort of thing. We'll lead you through all the different steps. There's more exercise. Stepping right, stepping left is just the first exercise. So if you want to learn and, and sort of get a sense of how those steps work and, and, and go through them as a progression, I recommend to consider that. You can sign up. It's free. Uh, sign up for it on our website. There's a link in the description as well. Okay, it's nine o'clock. We had we have more top tier questions. Four more bante. All right. Although I can practice sitting meditation, I regularly meditate while lying down. It is easier for me, and I can meditate longer. Sometimes I get drowsy. Should I be sitting instead when meditating? Yeah, if you're getting drowsy, you're probably better off sitting. Try to sit up. Try to do as much as you can sitting. It's a better posture. It really is just a better posture, generally speaking. There are going to be instances where lying is better, but in general, sitting is more challenging and it's more um, more awakening, more refreshing. It makes you more alert than lying, generally speaking. That being said, there's nothing wrong. with Lying meditation can be very helpful. Ananda became enlightened just as he was lying down because he decided to lie down. That's what they say. How should I understand Nama Rupa in meditation? I have the Western idea stuck in my head that the mental is just the physical brain, and this makes it hard to understand that the mental is separate. I'm going to skip this question, and I would ask you to skip it as well. Don't worry about it. Just get, just note that. Let me put it. Let me say this. Note that Western idea as an idea. When that idea is there, the fact that you can't get it out is showing you something. It's showing you that it's not under your control. That's more important than deciding whether the Western idea is right or wrong. Our thoughts. We're not interested in whether they're right or wrong. It's just a thought. Just say thinking, thinking, and if it comes back, well, say it again.
When I practice meditation and my natural breathing slows, I sometimes get a feeling of physical relief and relaxation, but concerned that this is a feeling of oxygen deprivation. Is this common? No, I mean, yeah, it's common to be concerned about things, but that's just your reaction to them. If you're concerned, say concerned or worried, actually, is probably what it is. Um, and if you feel relaxed, relief, you should note those as well. Don't don't be negligent. I don't know if you've read the booklet, if you're practicing the way we practice, but we would note all of those things as well. Can there be a time when meditation is not as helpful? How do I know if I've reached that state or it's something else? Mindfulness is always helpful. There's never going to be a time where it isn't. So focus on focus on that. And focus on the idea of being mindful. I'm not sure about the second question exactly what you mean. I'd say don't worry about reaching this state or that state. Okay, Bhante, those were the four. All right, I got them. That's all, everyone. Oh, a lot of people, a lot of questions. Wonderful. Thank you all for coming. Sadhu. Wish Sadhu. you all a good night. I appreciate your practice. May you all be, may we all benefit from this and come closer to our goal of being free from suffering. Thank you, Chris, for your help. Thank you.